Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas present Beyond the Climate Elephant, From Climate Denial to Public Engagement, with keynote speaker Kari Norgard and respondents David Schlossberg and Kyla Tianhara and Chair Daniel Selameya. Good evening. I'd like to welcome everybody to this Sydney Ideas on behalf of Sydney Ideas and the Sydney Environment Institute. I want to commence by acknowledging that we come together this evening on Indigenous land. This is the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And in light of the theme of tonight's event, I'd like for us to spend a moment being present to the denial that we live in of the ongoing dispossession that we're party to. Thank you. I pay my respects to the elders of the Gadigal people past and present and express our gratitude for the thousands of years of care that you took of this country. I'm Danny Solomon, I'm a professor in the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at this university and it's my great pleasure to introduce and share tonight's event. I'm really thrilled to be introducing Kari Norgard, who is our main event this evening. I'm going to say a few words by way of introduction to Kari, and then I'll explain the format for this evening's event and introduce our other two speakers. Kari is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. Before taking up this position in Oregon, Kari was on faculty at Whitman College in Walla Walla in Washington State. Uh, when I was reading her resume and I saw Walla Walla WA, which is the acronym for Washington State, I thought, oh, I didn't know that she was in Western Australia. It sounded like such an Aboriginal name, but no, Walla Walla in Washington State. And before that, she was a postdoctoral fellow in an interdisciplinary program on invasive species at the University of California, Davis. <clears throat> Over the past 10 years, Kari has been writing and teaching in a number of areas around environmental studies, environmental sociology, gender and environment, race and environment, climate change, social mo movements, and importantly, the sociology of, of emotions. Kari's published really broadly and richly in these fields, but, but is best known for her book, Living in Denial, which is based on an ethnographic study she conducted in a town in Norway. She wrote in depth on the people of this town because she found here a microcosm of a phenom phenomenon that confounds all of us, I think. Despite the unambiguous evidence of global warming and climate changes that were really causing damage, including economic loss to the people of this town, the local residents, she found, were not taking action. This close study allowed her to begin to answer a question that I think many of us are dumbstruck by. How is it that we can know what we know and yet continue to live as if we don't know? Of course, this is a question that's uniquely shocking in relation to climate change, given the gravity of what's at stake. But it's also a question that we ask ourselves in relation to a range of other issues. The violent incarceration and now abandonment of asylum seekers on Manus the ongoing mass incarceration of Indigenous adults and children, the industrial torture and slaughter of non-human animals, the political corruption supporting the establishment of a new coal mine in Queensland. I could go on, or I'm sure you could also. Kari's thinking can help us to work our way through all of these apparent madnesses, as I think of them, and importantly, uh, to begin to see how we can forge paths past denial into recognition and action. 
Kari will be speaking for about 25 minutes and then Professor David Schlossberg and Carla Tenahara from Greenpeace will all each respond to Kari for about 10 minutes. So as not to break the flow, I'm going to introduce them briefly now. David is well known to everybody here, I believe. He's the Professor of Environmental Politics at the University of Sydney and co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. As one of the world's leading scholars in environmental justice, David has not only written some of the most important texts in this field, defining environmental justice and climate challenge society being two of them, but he has shown extraordinary dedication to building a rich ecology of scholars, activists and community working on environmental justice issues. For his extraordinary leadership at this university, he has just last week been awarded one of the Payne Scott Professorial Distinctions and we all deeply congratulate him for that. We're also really delighted to have Kyla Tinahara from Greenpeace here, very much in the spirit of the Institute. We always see it as critical to bring together scholarly and activist voices, and in fact, Kyla is both a scholar and an activist. Uh, as someone who works on the coalface, and I'm probably not the first person to have made that pun, of trying to overcome denial of climate change and other forms of environmental destruction, Kyla perfectly fits that bill. Kyla is the Research and Investigations Coordinator at Greenpeace Australia Pacific, where she works primarily on the campaigns to end coal export and to halt oil exploration in the Great Australian Bight. Prior to joining Greenpeace, Kyla held an ARC Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Researcher or DECRA Award at the School of Regulation and Global Governance at the ANU. She's published uh, extensively on a number of topics around environmental politics and she has a forthcoming book with Routledge entitled Green Keynesianism and the Global Financial Crisis. After David and Kyla have spoken briefly, we'll move to the stage and we'll open the floor to your questions. So if I could ask Kari to come up and, um, and welcome to the University of Sydney. The image that's on the front there is the image from the front cover of my book that's um, actually what happened in this little town in Norway, which is um, uh, people skiing on 100% artificial snow. And at one point I thought that one of the ideas uh, for the title of this book might be something about the term double realities, and I'll, that'll become clear as I talk a little bit, but the idea that climate change is sort of in one, we have information, we understand things about it in one part of our minds, and in another part it's, we live as though that's not going on. Okay, let's see. So, um, so I first uh, took an entire course in climate, about climate change in 1989 when I was a student in college. And um, so there's been a lot of information. This is James Hansen testifying before the US Congress about that uh, the year before. Um, climate change has been, uh, there's a lot that's been known for an awful long time. And the scientific uh, you know, consensus has only increased and so on and so forth. But there's been this paradox which is um, of concern to many people and certainly many social scientists and many natural scientists who work on climate change, which is that despite that fact, um, for, for many people, we live as though it's not happening. And um, 
there's this, again, this sense of sort of a double reality, that information is known, but if you look at policy reports, if you look at um, how, how companies plan for their futures, how cities plan for what's going to be the, the threats, um, how the U.S. Forest Service or whatever the equivalent natural resource agencies here, they don't necessarily or often have this integration of what's happening when we think about our future and what life is going to be like. So this has been um, an issue for um, especially many scientists who are working on this and perhaps um, others of yourselves as well. What, how can it be that we're not doing anything? And the, the project I have is looking at um, that many of the main reasons why this has been and that, this, that it doesn't look this way. So the main explanations people have had is, has been, oh, you know, if we just give the public, people just don't know. We just don't actually understand what's really happening, and we need more information on the one hand. Um, either people don't understand because the science is complex. Well, it is complex, but it's, there's some pretty basic parts of it about the relationship between carbon dioxide and climate change and so forth. Um, or the media, you know, gives us the wrong slant. And, and it's true, the media does, is part of the problem. There's, you know, been this whole balance is bias problem and so forth. Um, you know, or the, the media is, you know, corporate controlled, which it is, and that's a problem. Um, or similarly, other kinds of, of answers that people just don't care enough, that humans don't care enough. We can't be bothered to care enough about each other. We can't be bothered to care enough about other, other beings with which we share this planet. And the explanation I want to give is quite different from that, although I think all of these explanations uh, matter at some level. And indeed, if we think about what's happening in the world right now, um, climate change poses really serious threats to our idea of how democracy works, of how uh, ideas we've had since sort of modernism of the rational world or these kinds of things. On the one hand, there's the outright climate skeptics who are saying, you know, it's just not happening. And on the other hand is the majority of people who do believe it's happening but are acting as though it's not happening. And that's the focus of, um, of my work. So although I was attacked by the US right and the British right for, uh, for saying that climate skeptics have all kinds of problems, I've never, that's not the work I do at all is on the climate skeptic movement. The work I do is um, on a different form of denial, which is according to um, the categorization of Stanley Cohen, the idea of implicatory denial. So literal denial would be more the climate skeptics. If you say, if you think climate change is happening but it's not human caused, that might be an example of sort of interpretive denial. Um, but implicatory denial is more when you're aware of something, but you're not really integrating the moral, uh, the moral consequences of that action. He uses this example um, of thinking about homelessness, um, uh, genocide, these kinds of things. Unlike literal or interpretive denial, knowledge is not the issue, but doing the right thing with the knowledge. So I want to walk you for a few minutes through this one community where I spent time, um, you know, as, again, as sort of a microcosm of what people in many privileged um, communities who may think that climate change is happening somewhere else or so forth, uh, what it looked like. This is a, a small rural town um, where, um, in Norway, where, which is my ancestry, where um, the snow came several months late. And... Um, it's, it's a lot of uh, skiing and uh, tourism and these kinds of, you know, skiing and winter tourism, but also farming and these kinds of things. And so in this town, um, people talked about this idea of that they were aware that climate change was happening, 
Um, but it was something they had to kind of sit themselves down and think about, didn't think about it in the everyday, um, but when they did think about it, it was discouraging or some sort of an emotional weight. So I draw on the idea of, from Robert Lifton that this is um, a double reality or um, this idea of a double life. I'm gonna give, I, I realize it's a little difficult to read with a um, screen, but um, with a light, but uh, just I'll read a few quotes from people. I, get, I often get afraid, like it goes very much up and down with how much I think about it, but if I sit myself down and think about it, it could actually happen. I thought about it. if this continues, we could come to have no difference between winter and spring and summer, and lots of stuff about the ice that's melting and it will be flooding. It's depressing the way I think about it. And so I'll read a few more interview quotes from people, but um, essentially I, from doing ethnographic work and then just spending time listening to people, what were people saying and asking them, well, why, why aren't you doing much about climate change? Um, I, I ended up focusing on the role of emotion and the three emotions in particular, although some people have suggested a fourth of anger um, as being relevant, um, the idea of guilt, um, the idea that people were afraid about the future and the sense of helplessness. And so I'm a sociologist, but I do draw and connect with work in um, psychology. And um, one of the most powerful theories in psychology is the idea of cognitive dissonance, that you can't hold two really conflicting ideas in your mind at once. Um, and also some other theories in psychology that m most of us actually believe or want to believe and see ourselves as good people or as good members, uh, you know, good, uh, good Australians, good Norwegians in this case. And so information about climate change is in contrast to that. Similarly, um, fears about the future and um, that they go in conflict with our need to, see, to feel a sense of security in the world. And then thirdly, a sense of helplessness, which goes against our need to um, feel actually that we are powerful and can be powerful actors in our own lives. So, um, one person says, I find there's a kind of guilt because the way we live culturally, the way we've been raised is contrary to our ideals in a lot of ways. You can be against global warming to a certain extent, but we're still heating our homes and driving our cars and shipping our food long distances. It's really hard to live in a social context and be aligned with your beliefs on the environment. Um, in terms of fear of the future, we've now come so far, we've begun to see that to protect or not protect the environment we're living in, in 100 years it's possible the environment will be damaged to the point it isn't possible to live on Earth anymore, you know? And this is from an American. When I hear Bill McKibben speaking and the talk about the tipping point, fear comes in with helplessness. Oh my God, there's nothing. I found out, you know, we're 50 years away from the worst. We haven't even felt the effect of what we're doing now. It makes me think we can't do anything. It's already beyond help, and there's the fear. And then in terms of the third emotion, I think there's a lot of people who feel no matter what I do, I can't do anything about it anyway, or that's like where I feel the most helpless. It's like I know all this stuff, I have this information, but what the hell do I do with it? I don't know where to turn, I don't know who to talk to. Yeah, I can write my congressman a letter, but in all honesty, I'm not sure that one person can make such a difference. And I, I'm just curious, actually, because these interviews are in a different cultural context and I'm not as familiar as what's been happening here. If people feel comfortable, do these resonate for, for you? Yeah. Um, I had some other ideas of things that we might do, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but, um, so I, so this is, this is one piece of it, this idea that there's a, um, 
there's a psychological component, but I'm a sociologist and I'm interested in how this fits together, that we are not, we don't come up with these fears um, or feel them, you know, we feel them in a social context and what we do about them is also in a social context. So I ended up spending a lot of time thinking about um, cultural norms, watching how people change, change the conversation um, when they're uncomfortable, how you can talk about the weather and make jokes maybe, but not do other kinds of more serious um, uh, conversation about climate change and how how do we reproduce a sense of what's normal through what we actually talk to each other about and thus create the sense that climate change is distant because we're never talking about it, we're not thinking about it, and these kinds of things. But again, how this is all connected to emotions of powerlessness, fear, or guilt. And um, so I'm not going to give you all of the theory on that, um, but I'll give you just a few examples. Um, people talked about selective attention, and I asked people, well, what do you do? You know, and people talked about the different techniques that they have. Um, you know, uh, I don't listen to the news in the morning myself because it, 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 it inhibits my ability to concentrate, so I do selective attention. I mean, all of us have these techniques that we do to, um, to navigate our lives. Um, one person talks about, um, you know, you work on something, but you just, you just focus on the one thing you can do. You'd better not to know the rest of it. Um, and essentially, through, through these different techniques, you have the knowledge, but you live actually in a completely different world. So this one, um, one activist talks about um, not allowing herself to think so far ahead. It's terrible to think we live so well while others live in such miserable circumstances. Of course, it's very good to have a comfortable life. I enjoy it. But I feel so bad about others. I have a guilty conscience. That's why I try not to think about it, to keep it at a distance. So another thing I, talked, I looked at were some of the sort of cultural discourses that people have for um, blaming others or for um, talking about why there's no reason that they themselves should engage. Um, so um, this is America with the way, sort of the, actually it's misspelled in either Norwegian or in English, but um, the, there's a, a, a lot of people, and I'm sure a, a lot of people in this room get a lot of mileage about pointing at what people in my country are doing, and as you should. <laughs> Um, it's, I'm, it is very discouraging um, to see, you know, obviously the size of the United States and the amount of political power that we wield. Um, so you can say we're not as bad. You know what we do in the United States? What do you think we do in the United States? Who do we blame? China. Yeah, exactly. Chinese and who else? Uh, not so much, but the climate skeptics, the U.S. climate skeptics. So anyway, everybody, and, and, I'm, and, and these only work if, they, if there's credibility to them, right? You know, it, it only works. But um, similarly, Norway, very large uh, oil and gas producer and so forth, um, you know, there's this phrase, Norge er et lite land. Norway is just a little country and, you know, we, we can't, we're only four and a half million people. And so, you know, these are, I'm not saying, again, these discourses only work if, if you know, people can buy into them. Um, and again, you know, different kinds of emphases on Norwegians is pure and so forth. Um, similarly, uh, other kinds of discourses about how uh, Norwegian uh, oil is cleaner than oil that comes out of Russia or that Norwe Norway needs to build more uh, natural gas plants because it's, it's better than coal, I mean, you can imagine, and I'm sure you have your own versions. Um, but again, to point out, all of this is very connected. A lot of these discourses come from the national government. They get reproduced in the media framing um, and, um, they, as, and get picked up and used by people in um, public um, you know, 
just everyday discourse, but it's also very much about privilege and, and protecting oneself. Again, from disturbing emotions for which I share and have a lot of compassion for, um, but it's also about preserving privilege to do this because Norwegians in particular um, get a lot of um, wealth from, um, from oil money, which goes directly into the state coffers, but as well um, in the United States, obviously we benefit from um, the large carbon footprint that we have, although that we is not a universal we. So again, so thinking about, um, so I think about that, I talk about the idea of denial as socially organized. It's something that people participate in individually related to these emotions, but it is, um, or there's, a, there's an individual component in terms of these emotions and feeling isolated around them, but then there's the, um, the, disc, the sense of collective, the way it's reproduced in co uh, cultural norms and cultural practices and at the macro level um, is coming out of a political economic context. People in the Maldives do not have this going on, right? We can think about the different, and you could talk about the context here in Australia. Okay, so um, probably taking a little bit too long on that part, but I wanna shift to, um, so if, if the answer, if the reason that we have so much public apathy and this is, and we are in a crisis, right? We are in a crisis, and pe and we are not responding. But if you think that the reason that we're not responding is because people don't know, then you want to give them information. And I'm not saying that information doesn't matter. I'm an educator. I definitely believe in giving information. Um, but if but if people are going to, in the way people want to protect themselves a little bit, just putting more information is not is not your ticket, right? If you think that people are not responding because they don't care, you try to convince them to care. Um, but if 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 you if the reason that people are not responding is because of feeling helpless, being afraid, feeling guilty. Um, that are interfering with that, or perhaps even caring too much, and they feel overwhelmed, then what do you do? Um, and so, um, apologize, it's a little bit text heavy. Um, so I think one thing that's happening, if you look at what's um, happening in um, the United States right now, obviously there's a lot uh, to be discouraged about on the climate front in terms of the, uh, the Trump election, but one of the reasons that that happened um, is because of people really wanting a change and wanting to have large change. And um, we are at a time now um, where I think we have a sense of urgency around climate change, but the ways that it's um, being talked about are in very individualistic, uh, 10 ways you can easily fix the problem, very much actually in line with that same uh, frame and, and um, system that's got, got us there in the first place. So we need to have actually very real conversations about what it is that we need to be doing, how power works, you know, and that's actually one of the gifts, I think, of the, of the Trump presidency in the United States. It is very clear <laughs> in terms of the political power and, and, where, and who has it and what it's looking like. Um, in the absence of having those real discourses about what you can actually do, as opposed to being told you could change a light bulb or uh, buy an electric car, um, which are fine things to do, um, or walk, these are wonderful things to do, everyone should be doing them, but they're not gonna solve climate change even if all of us and everyone in the United States did them, right? It's, it's about much larger scale change. So on that end, I wanna quickly um, say some things about the um, Folks that I've been working with since doing this work in Norway, I've been doing advocacy work for the last decade and a half um, around the Klamath River with the Kaduk tribe. And this is my good friend, Ron Reed, who is um, the cultural biologist. He's a traditional dip net fisherman and one of the people I've learned a great deal from in the last 10 years or so that we've been working together. 
And um, it's relevant as well, and this is coming back to sort of my appreciation for the acknowledgement um, and the relationships of denial and colonialism and climate change. Um, because one of the things um, that I've learned um, from Ron and other people in the tribe who um, don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of education, and don't have um, a, a lot of um, resources in the way that I, my life has them, is that they have a very clear analysis of power they have a very clear uh, sense of um, responsibility um, and um, care for each other, care for the earth, and they fight like hell in every way they know how. <laughs> and it is gratifying and feels good to, to do that, to, um, to uh, be engaged. And it's been incredibly inspiring for me personally to, um, to work in, in, with Ron and other people. So um, here's um, one of the things we've been doing is climate adaptation planning. My friend Ron sees climate change actually as an opportunity. And um, of course, this is a cliche thing, the idea of climate change as um, crisis as opportunity. Um, but in fact, it is a time when many of us, many people around the world are, um, are aware that we are in a very serious situation and are starting to think and look and what is it that we can be done. In Ron's case, there's a lot of traditional knowledge around fire. I understand that fire is a, one of the ways that climate change manifests locally as well. And so that's one of the things that we've been working on. Um, this is a pyrocumulus cloud. It's a, a fire cloud that was so big, it started spot, four different large spot fires, um, you know, dozens of miles away from where it originally was. Um, and so I've been working with them on climate adaptation planning um, connected to, uh, to fire and using traditional knowledge to bring fire back. It's something I understand. There's some, um, certainly some work that's been done here in Australia as well. So we need to start having um, real um, discourses about um, the seriousness of climate change and, and the seriousness of, um, of um, our need to respond. I think actually how society works, if we think about things in a very, we're, we are taught that it's a very individualistic thing, uh, or that we should be responding as individuals, as consumers, and that is actually not a very satisfying uh, thing to be told when we realize that it's a very real problem. And part of the disengagement, I think, is because we haven't been having these kinds of real conversations. And we need to look around and think about, you know, what kinds of social movements and resources each of you have in your own lives, in your communities, um, what, what the political opportunities are that come out of the different moments. Internationally, um, and we are living in very exciting times. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the things happening on each scale. Um, I don't have as current examples here, but perhaps we can get to that in the conversation in a minute. Um, internationally, obviously, we have um, a major agreement last year in Paris. Um, the glass is both half empty and half full, right? On the one hand, we have this. On the other hand, it's non-binding. On the other hand, the US has pulled out, which as far as I can tell might be a good thing. We should pull out faster so everyone else can get um, to work on it. Um, we have uh, many countries shifting away from coal. Um, 10 days or so ago, the uh, Norwegian oil fund, which controls something like 1.5% of all global stocks, has said that they're moving out of um, coal and, um, and um, and oil, not because uh, to do, they're trying to do the right thing, but because um, it's economically too risky, which is setting all kinds of price shocks other, case, other places um, to the industry as a whole. Let's see, did I skip a whole bunch? Okay, in the US, um, obviously we've had major social movements uh, recently, um, very la uh, rapidly shifting landscape in terms of um, what's happening politically at the highest levels. 
um, and what are going to be the strategic opportunities is uh, continuing to change. Um, there's a lot of things that we can and need to be doing, and certainly things like ending fossil fuel subsidies would be enormous. Um, there's a lot of social movement activity, which is showing, I think, that there's a great deal of desire for change that people have. There's a sense, um, I think, that the whole neoliberal discourse is not, people are not as confident in it as they, um, as they have been before. Again, the sense of uh, power, awareness of power. Um, and we've had um, the whole um, Standing Rock uh, no Dakota Access Pipeline movement, which although it has not been successful in terms of stopping, there is oil f uh, flowing right now through that pipeline, was enormously politicizing um, for all of the indigenous peoples who were there and for all of the allies. And so again, an example of um, the kind of large-scale social movements that we have happening. This has led to all kinds of smaller, um, in my own state, um, movements against all of the other um, pipelines that are being proposed. Um, one of the things I think that is incredibly important for non-Indigenous people is to be listening to and following the lead Native peoples, and I don't know all of what's happening here in Australia, and I know that the landscape is very different, but in the United States and Canada, um, the Indigenous peoples are on the forefront of having different ideas about what needs to be done, um, fighting, um, fighting very hard, and leading social movements in all kinds of, um, of different ways of being engaged. Um, at the state level, there's also all kinds of opportunities for engagement. We're working on trying to um, pass um, carbon tax type legislation, which can be very effective in other um, areas um, at, at multiple levels. Um, there's all kinds of movements against um, pipeline activity. The local level, our university students sat in at the administration building and got the university to divest um, from fossil fuels or to say that they would, um, wouldn't be putting anything in. For, for, there's been a whole process there. I know there's similar movements. Um, happening. There's all kinds of, um, at, the, at the city level, things that can be done. We have the um, 21 young people are suing the, um, suing the federal government on behalf of future generations, and that's happening as well in my community. And I want to point, this is my family, uh, my husband and my son, um, that being involved um, is actually very meaningful it can, and, can, and can be fun. And this was at the climate um, legislation. My son's entire uh, class spoke, and multiple other classes were there and sp speaking. And um, you know, we think it, it can be cumbersome or so forth, but actually working together on behalf of things that are meaningful in your communities, existing communities, is a wonderful way of engaging. So um, at the, I think this is my second to last slide. I know I'm just about to turn it over to, um, to my commentators, um, but just, um, Sort of in closing here, there, so we can think about, you know, at, at an individual level, rather than thinking about um, doing things that are, you know, more sort of piecemeal, um, working together in groups. This is part of why I think there's such a sense of hopelessness and um, fear is actually from isolation at the individual level. Um, you know, one of the questions I was thinking of asking you is, is um, you know, at what moment or have you had that sense where you really felt um, oh my God, we are so screwed. And what is that moment like for you? And have you spoken to other people about it? You know, so this sense of really of connecting with, with other people, um, working in your um, existing organizations. You know, my son's school is working on things about climate change. Churches are an incredibly important 
um, force, but your workplace community, um, all of these, these avenues are places where people can work together. We really need each other, and this is one of the opportunities as well of climate change, is that we cannot do it by ourselves, and we actually really need each other, and we need to be working across very different communities, and in doing that, you will understand that climate change is not happening somewhere else, but very close. Um, so working with other groups, and again, working at um, local enough levels that it can feel meaningful. Um, you know, my understanding is the Sydney, city of Sydney is doing fabulous work on climate adaptation. Um, David can speak um, more about that, but, um, but levels that are meaningful but are connected with the larger level because again, you know, the city of Sydney or my city of Eugene can't do anything without um, getting off of coal and all of the larger steps. And there are political opportunities, many different kinds of political opportunities um, at different stages. So um, that's where I'll leave it for now. I know we get to um, move into comments and questions, but um, essentially if, if, if climate, if socially organized, organized denial is sort of this whole system that's held in place at these different levels, the opportunity of that is that there are actually many ways we can intervene and that the world, although it can seem like you know, social change doesn't happen. In fact, social, the world is changing very fast all the time, and there are multiple levels and scales at which we can be involved according to what feels like your own personality and your own way of meaningfully engaging. So thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for coming. Thanks to Carrie for coming uh, all that way. I realized... Um, in addition to thanking Carrie and Sydney Ideas and SEI, I also have to thank SHARC, which I can never remember. It is the Sydney Social Science and Humanities Advanced Research Center. Yes, is that something like that? It's close. Thank you um, for um, some of the funding uh, that came uh, for this event. Look, I, um, I'm gonna warn you, okay? I wanna talk about some really depressing stuff first. So I'm gonna follow Carrie's lead here. I'm gonna talk about some really depressing stuff first, and then I wanna try and talk about um, some more positive responses to that, because there are positive responses to that, and it's really important to come back um, to that as a way of getting beyond that cognitive dissonance. So um, Carrie's work on this more um, or implicit or implicatory form of denial, this sort of everyday denial, our distancing from the reality uh, of an issue, I think has been just absolutely crucial for helping us to understand the everyday experience of living with climate change. So CARE's work has been um, really crucial. Um, how, how do we accommodate, how do we understand, how do we live with, how do, how do we live with it, how do we live with ourselves? Uh, at the same time? How do we address, and this image keeps on coming back, how do you address the, the elephant uh, in the room? One that we acknowledge but completely ignore out of fear or anxiety um, or the sheer immensity uh, of the task. So how do we go, how do we go on? How do we go on with the minutia of our everyday lives as temperatures rise, as species die off, as floods drown communities, as coal pollution or heat waves continue to kill people. I told you it was gonna be depressing to start. Um, how do we go on um, with that? And then as bad as that sounds, and this gets back to what Danny was saying at the very beginning, as bad as that sounds, of course, it's a lot worse because climate change is only one of these areas where we live with this everyday denial. 
where we know something awful is happening, um, but we live with it all the time. There are a lot of elephants in the room doing, or a lot of elephants in a lot of different rooms, or a lot of elephants doing a lot of damage uh, in a lot of different ways. So Carrie's framing is important, not just to help us understand climate change and ourselves in a climate challenge society, but in helping us to understand how we come to terms with a range of issues. And again, as Danny said, there's a lot going on, right? So the Australian government, of course, has been holding hundreds uh, of people seeking basic political asylum hostage uh, against international law in inhumane conditions against basic human rights. And this has been going on for years. We know it's been going on for years. It's been happening every day. It gets worse. Um, and while most of us could never imagine what that feels like, right, even for a day, it's difficult to imagine what that would be like. We know it's been going on for years for people, right, and uh, who live like that. And our lives go on like normal. So we live with this type of denial. Sexual harassment is another one of these issues. We know. We know, people know, right? I mean, with Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and, and um, Louis C.K., for example, among many others, who's the Australian? So this is like me only being here for a few years. I had no idea who Don Burke was until yesterday. Sorry, only been here seven years. You can pass the citizenship test without knowing the answer to that question. Um, but we knew this. People knew. People understood. There were rumors. There was reality, right? So the, the comedian Sarah Silverman talks about, for Louis C.K., you know, how she's known this guy for 25 years, right? And how is it possible to love someone who you know has done these things? But the reality is she's known him for 25 years, right? Her sister dated him and broke up with him for exactly that reason. So there's knowledge there, and yet there is this living constantly with this kind of denial while you know this treatment of women um, goes on, right? And then, of course, and again, as Danny said, um, in Australia, we have the continued abuse, incarceration, disrespect, um, and ignorance uh, of indigenous peoples, right? That it's just so easy for the government to ask uh, Aboriginal communities to come up with some sort of form of recognition around the Constitution, and then to completely ignore it. I mean, just completely blow it off in a day uh, after over a year of work. I mean, that's just an amazing bit of disrespect. And yet, we knew it, we heard about it, we know it's been going on for a long time, uh, and it's old news now. Right? So these are issues um, that happen all the time. And, and another comedian, I get my political theory from comedians, right? So John Oliver once, um, I think it was one of the most brilliant analyses of, uh, of Australia, sorry, um, was, uh, he said, Australians wear their racism like a comfortable slipper. Right? So it's this idea, it's there. It's there, but you forget about it. It's there, you know it's there, um, but you don't think about it. Right? So it's just this sense uh, of the elephant in the room, this form uh, of denial. Right? So part of my question about this, and, and Carrie gets to this, is not just how do we know this behavior is going on, this person is doing this thing, and how do we continue to love them, right? The question is, how do we continue to love ourselves or stand to ourselves, right? How do we keep these um, contradictions, the guilt, the fear, the helplessness, the anger? Anger's key. Anger toward government uh, is key um, and powers a lot of problematic uh, outputs. So um, that's... 
that's the reality. I mean, this is our everyday life. We will sort of uh, see and avoid uh, this whole variety of elephants uh, in the room. But then the question is, yeah, how do you um, respond? So, look, I do a lot of this stuff. I, you know, focus on a lot of this depressing stuff, but I couldn't do the job that I do um, without also focusing on the second half of your talk, which is the second half of my response as well, which is the positive stuff. And there is a lot of positive stuff, and it does come out of community. And one of the thrilling things uh, about being in this area, being in Sydney, not just on the university, but uh, in the area, is community-based ways of building hope and building um, I can't think of the elephant metaphor, but building ways to release the elephant or to, um, um, to let them go in some way. So I want to just sort of touch briefly on two, and we can talk more about others um, in the Q&A. So I wear a number of hats. I wear way too many hats um, here at the university, but um, some of the new developments have me thinking about ways that we respond to this form of denialism. So one of my roles is as um, one of the heads of a new research hub based at the university, which is on, which is for the New South Wales um, uh, Office of Environment and Heritage uh, on the health and social impacts of climate change. So we're doing research for the state adaptation um, policy group uh, on uh, on health and social impacts. And actually, adaptation. I mean, just to start with a hopeful thing. Um, there was a day-long conference uh, on adaptation in, uh, in New South Wales yesterday run by OEH. Packed room, people from all over the state and global guests saying, you guys are ahead of the game, right? What's happening here with adaptation planning, not just in the city of Sydney, but statewide, um, is, uh, is really world-leading. Now, it's a low bar, right, globally, <laughs> but it is world-leading. There's some amazing work um, that's going on here. Part of this is based on one of the things that we're doing at the university is around this idea of planetary health, which is looking at the relationship between, between climate impacts, between things like biodiversity, public health, and larger, a larger sense of well-being, right? social vulnerability uh, and well-being. But the focus isn't just on the impacts. right? The focus isn't on, um, on, um, on, on the nastiness of it, that we have to do some of that. Um, there's an incredible resonance to this sort of focus on health and changing the topic, right? So the, the, the elephant that we're so used to and that we haven't been able to deal with climate change becomes a public health issue. And public health and the impacts of climate change, that's something we can do something about. We can do something about heat waves. We can do something about rising oceans. We can do something about social vulnerability um, around things like heat. Uh, and air pollution, and coal, and burning coal. So The Lancet released a report, was it last week or the week before, which talked about the tens of thousands of deaths uh, around pollution from burning coal uh, across the globe. It was one of the things that led to the new coalition um, that's promising to move away from coal. Obviously, the, uh, Australia didn't sign on to that. But what, and people in Australia should talk, start talking about the number of people our coal kills every day in China and India, by the way. But the public health discourse is, is something that resonates. It's something that people are interested in. It's something um, that brings it down to the everyday. So we've been working with, with Resilient Sydney, with the group Resilient Sydney, um, which is linked across the region, but also across the world. We've been talking with people about bushfires, about heat waves, about flooding. Um, we actually spent a day today talking about Martin Place 
but it's all about community inclusion and adaptation planning, community responses um, to, um, to the hazards um, that come with climate change. And so the question really to get back to Carrie is, why do people care about this? Why do people show up uh, at these focus groups? Why is there such um, an intense desire to do something about the impacts of climate change when there hasn't been so much to do with stopping climate change uh, in the first place? And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that the impacts are not a future thing anymore, right? This is an everyday thing. This is something that people see all the time. Um, the, the sense of things, the people that we talk to in the Blue Mountains, the anxiety about fires every year is quite different now than it was 20 years ago. People knew 20 years ago fires were gonna come through, that fire is a natural way of life in the Blue Mountains. Now it's catastrophic fire and fear of absolute catastrophic fire and the disruption of, a, of generations of living in place. So there's a sense of that impact on everyday life that resonates with people and they get um, involved. The public health issue is also, and an, an adaptation, it's just a different discourse. Right, so I tell the story about my father-in-law, who recently passed, but he was a radical sort of left-wing Democrat in the US for years and years until he retired, moved to Florida, and started watching Fox News. So there is, there's actually something, I don't know if you know about that, there's actually some papers on something people call Fox Geezer Syndrome, which is this transition. Right? But the point was that there were things that I could not talk to him about and climate change was one of those things I could not talk to him about because he was all informed by Fox News and you couldn't talk to him about that. He also didn't want to talk to me as a professor because of course I was a communist corrupting the youth, but that was a whole different thing. But I could talk to him about health, I could talk to him about adapting, I could talk to him about energy efficiency, things that save money. There are a variety of things that go beyond that and that, um, that engaged people, even people who were on climate change, denialists. And we're getting the same thing here in Sydney where during the discussions on adaptation, we talked to people about, um, we talked to a wide range of people, including denialists, um, people who um, may have denied climate change, but know that their houses are getting hotter, know that the trees are blooming at a different time, they garden, and they want something done about that. They want to be able um, to build extensions onto the house or whatever and get past um, council restrictions and all of that. So there, there are ways of engaging and there are ways of getting um, this focus on community and this focus on, uh, on change. So on adaptation, I think there's a lot uh, of hope there. The other example I wanna talk about just briefly um, and then we'll, um, we'll move on is um, that there are ways that some communities are engaging particular issues um, at the community level. So for example, we've been doing some work on community energy movements and community food movements. So food, for example, is you know, people know, people understand what the industrialized food system does and the way that it poisons um, uh, rivers and disrupts um, all, you know, all kinds of wildlife and biodiversity. It also uh, harms animals um, in terms of factory farming. People know, right, and it also harms farmers in terms of price controls and all of that. In this country, there are all kinds of problems with industrialized farming and the fact that most of us go to Coles and Woolies to buy our food and we're, we're assisting in this industrialized food system and it's just the way we live and we have to live with this kind uh, of internal denial. But increasingly there's an opportunity to completely step out of that system. Right? In a lot of communities you have alternative food systems um, where you have growers working with local farmers markets, you have growers working with people who are developing value-added products, sauces and other types of things. 
um, not just sort of overpriced stuff like at Everly, sorry, but you know, more sort of everyday sorts of markets like we're seeing in Tasmania and Launceston, for example. Um, and the focus there is not just on food, but building community around food, bringing farmers back into market, bringing farmers away from the duopoly. The farmers love it. They get to move away from the duopoly. Um, assisting in the development of local businesses that, that produce local products for local consumption or for export um, to the mainland or further. There's the building of a system. It's not just one individual buying one thing to feel better about themselves for an hour or so. It's removing one's own self, one's body from a circulation of, of this problematic product um, and creating something new and sustainable and better. It's the same with community energy, which is growing in leaps and bounds here in Australia. And again, it's fully removing one's body, one's life, so you don't have to deal with that elephant, right? You're creating something else. So there's a lot of that happening here. There's a lot of work happening at the Institute um, looking at these things. So I think there is this potential for community-based action um, to create new ways of life and, and get us away from that cognitive dissonance uh, around all the elephants in the room. Thanks. Hi, everyone. So um, first, I have to send apologies from Susanna Compton, who's the uh, Deputy Program Director at Greenpeace Australia Pacific and was meant to be speaking tonight. Um, she's had an injury and is on some pretty heavy painkillers, so um, probably wouldn't have been the best to, to speak at this forum. Um, but I'm very happy that I was able to substitute in. I apologize if my comments are a bit um, short and not very coherent because I hadn't had much time to prepare, but um, I really enjoyed the presentation, so I'm, I'm happy that I got the chance to be here. I must say, when I first saw the, uh, the title of the session, um, being about climate denial, I assumed as your right-wing critics that we were going to be talking about climate skepticism, and my gut reaction was, oh God, haven't we gotten past this? I mean, I know in our respective governments we still have a lot of climate skeptics around, um, but I feel like, in general, the public is moving away from that. And I think I was really happy when I started looking at your research and seeing that, actually, I think you're focusing on something that's much more relevant for us to be discussing in, in 2017. And I also really appreciated um, what you've said about uh, individualism versus sort of more structural uh, change in collective action. And I think that's very much in line with uh, Greenpeace's philosophy of social change, where we focus really on holding corporations and governments to account um, rather than the more sort of turn off your lights and drive less type of um, advocacy. Um, so as was mentioned in the introduction, I work uh, primarily on two campaigns. One is uh, to end coal exports and the other is uh, on preventing oil exploration in the Great Australian Bight. Um, and if I had thought about it more, I could have brought the Norwegian connection out because Statoil is um, now the main um, proponent of, uh, for going forward for oil exploration down there. Um, but that's very early on in the campaign, and I think more people in the room are probably interested in what's going on with coal. And I also think um, that that campaign really demonstrates um, how we can move past the feelings of helplessness uh, and not knowing what to do and um, take really positive collective action. Uh, and how that can be quite effective, uh, much more effective than simply focusing on changing individual behavior. Um, so as I was trying to sort out how I would organize my comments um, this afternoon, I came across one of your articles that was only very recently published um, in Global and Planetary Change on the social ima sociological imagination in the time of climate change. 
And even though that's not the explicit focus of your talk, I found it really helpful um, for thinking about how uh, we look at the issue of, of climate change and coal. And so I'm sort of structuring it around um, the terminology that you use there. So in that article, you distinguish between uh, the ecological imagination, which is the ability to perceive the relationships between human actions and their effects on the Earth's biophysical system, and then sociological imagination, which is the ability to see the relationships within society uh, that make the social structure that is causing the environmental damage. So building up the ecological imagination of the public has largely been the task of natural scientists. Um, and whilst you note that developing the public sociological imagination is left to those in the social sciences and humanities, and I would also add groups like Greenpeace and progressive politicians. Here in Australia, I think that the task of natural scientists has been a quite difficult one um, for a number of reasons, um, a lot to do with the connection between the fossil fuel industry and the government and misinformation in the media and so forth, um, but also because some of the most obvious impacts of climate change which could actually help motivate people on the issue, uh, such as more frequent and severe bushfires, uh, as David mentioned, and droughts and more extreme storms, uh, ironically seem to be easier for people to ignore and vested interests to dismiss because they're considered a normal part of Australian life. So former Prime Minister Tony Abbott argued in 2013 that Australia has had fires and floods since the beginning of times. We've had much bigger floods and fires than the ones we've recently experienced, and you can hardly say that they were a result of anthropic uh, global warming. And of course, the then environment Greg, minister Greg Hunt famously told the BBC that he had consulted Wikipedia on the issue and that the entry there opens up with the fact that bushfires in Australia are frequently occurring events during the hotter months of the year. Large areas of land are ravaged every year by bushfires. That's the Australian experience. I hope David is right that that kind of sentiment is not reflecting current feeling within communities that actually experience bushfires. Um, but I want to turn instead to another um, tragedy that I think um, is more difficult for people to write off in this manner and has managed to capture the ecological imagination of the Australian public. And that's the demise of the Great Barrier Reef. So the Great Barrier Reef, as we all know, is the largest living structure on Earth, and it's very much a part of Australian identity. And I would suggest that the vast majority of Australians, even those that have never visited the reef and don't economically benefit in any way from the tourism that it brings, place a very high intrinsic value on it. And it has become abundantly clear, uh, especially in the past two years with major bleaching events, that climate change, along with other human activities, is killing it. There are, of course, still very foolish politicians who will go for a snorkel on the reef and declare that it looks just fine to them. But when polled a year ago, which was before the second major bleaching event in a row occurred, more than two-thirds of Australians believed that the condition of the Great Barrier Reef should be declared a national emergency and supported much stronger measures to protect it. So clearly Australians understand that the reef is under threat and that something can and should be done about it. So that is progress on the ecological imagination side of the equation. However, then we come to the sociological imagination, which as you note in your article is a harder nut to crack. This is certainly true in Australia where a substantial challenge there's a substantial challenge establishing the link between the coal industry, climate change, and the threat to the reef. In, essential, in an essential poll from this June, 
When asked about the mega coal mine that has been proposed in the Galilee Basin in Queensland and its impacts, only 41% of respondents thought that there was a trade-off between reef jobs and coal jobs and that reef jobs should be prioritized. 12% thought that there was a trade-off between the two types of jobs and that coal jobs should be prioritized. But more significantly, 21% did not think that there was a trade-off at all. In other words, those respondents believed that we can continue to dig up and export coal and also save the reef. A further 25% responded that they did not know if there was a trade-off. So there is one major challenge of sociological imagination. We still need to convince 46% of Australians that a healthy reef and more broadly a livable climate is incompatible with coal extraction and export. However, while that number is still very high, I would argue that it's probably a lot lower than it would have been a year ago. And I think that the reason for that is that the environmental movement in this country has been engaged in an incredibly powerful campaign known as Stop Adani. For Kari and others that might not be as familiar with the background to this campaign, although I noticed that you did mention Adani in your presentation, um, the Adani Group is a multinational corporation that proposed back in 2010 to build the Carmichael coal mine in northern Queensland which at full capacity would be the largest coal mine in Australian history. Since then, the mine has had to overcome a number of hurdles uh, and and gain a number of environmental approvals. It continues to be um, resisted by local indigenous groups and by a very large environmental movement. And also, importantly, it still lacks finance. Many view that the project is actually unbankable and likely to become a stranded asset for Adani as the world transitions away from coal. Nevertheless, the company persists in its efforts, most likely because writing off the asset at this point would jeopardize its investment in the Abbott Point coal terminal, which requires shipments of coal to move through it in order to remain viable. And the federal government also, of course, persists persists in its effort to get the mine going. And this is where most of my attention has been directed for the past year. So just around this time last year when I joined Greenpeace, Someone leaked to the media that the federal government's Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility, or NAIF, a $5 billion fund set up to provide concessional loans for infrastructure projects in Northern Australia, was considering a $1 billion loan to an undisclosed Adani company to fund a rail line that would service the mine, bringing coal from the remote remote Galilee Basin to the Abbott Point Terminal for export. So the supposedly independent board of the NAIF consists of a number of members working directly in the mining sector, one of which could directly benefit from the Adani mine moving forward, as well as several other members with strong ties to the sector. The CEO formerly worked in the fossil fuel lending in a number of commercial banks, and the minister responsible for NAIF, Matt Canavan, is the cheerleader-in-chief for the industry and has made it clear on more than one occasion that he wanted it to go ahead. So the entire process for the consideration of the loan was veiled in secrecy um, and seemed like it was a done deal from the beginning. When we made a very simple freedom of information request asking for the schedule of board meetings, it was rejected on the basis that we might show up on location and protest. Something that to the best of my knowledge is not a valid reason for non-disclosure under the FOI Act. So we've been actually been appealing that decision with the Office of the Information Commissioner since January. But you can see why people in the environmental movement would be very discouraged about the potential for actually stopping this loan. We couldn't understand what was going on with the board's thinking of this in, uh, on the issue, let alone have any influence on the outcome. 
On the other hand, the public was not very hard to convince at all. Although NAIF is a bit of a weird acronym and concessional lending is not something that the average person thinks much about, poll after poll made it abundantly clear that Australians did not want a billion dollars of their money put into this project. Even those that support the mine going ahead do not want to have to pay for it. So while we still have a long, terms, oh, a long way in terms, of going, uh, in terms of convincing a large proportion of the Australian public that coal and a healthy reef are incompatible, we can at least say beyond a doubt now that most people agree that the taxpayers shouldn't be paying big corporations to dig the stuff up. And I think that has promise for continuing campaigns on ending fossil fuel subsidies. And that, it turns out, was enough to make the Adani mine a huge issue in the Queensland election over the weekend. At this point, it looks like Anastasia Palaszczuk's Labour government will win the election. And while there were many issues that moved people's votes, a number of pundits believe that Labour's promise to veto the Nath loan in the early days of the campaign was decisive in their victory. Exit polling on election day showed, up the, showed that up to 70% of voters opposed the Adani mine and that the issue had an impact on their thinking at the polling booth. On ABC's election night coverage, Queensland Environment Minister Stephen Miles, Federal Minister for Northern Australia Matt Canavan, and Queensland Mines Minister Anthony Lynham all acknowledged that opposition to Adani was a significant factor in Labour's victory. The NAIF loan has become so toxic that even a campaigner for the defeated Liberal National Party admitted that no one wants to see a billion dollars of taxpayer monies going to a mining company, but their hands were tied because they couldn't veto something that their own federal party had set up. That admission is quite an amazing transformation that has occurred because of the efforts of the Stop Adani movement. Now, unfortunately, although that's all sort of a positive story, uh, and the NAIF loan was considered critical to the project to move forward and now appears to be dead, uh, the fight to stop Adani continues. The latest threat comes from possible finance from Chinese companies and state banks, which could help the project to get over the line. But getting back to the sociological imagination, I think that the Stop Adani movement has really made some huge strides forward and has more generally demonstrated that if you provide people with a very clear target, a consistent narrative and clear actions that they can get involved in, uh, then they will be motivated to act and it is very empowering. So if there's anyone in the room that is still sort of in that sort of denial phase and feels like they don't have anything that they can contribute, uh, I strongly encourage you to join the Stop Badani movement. And I'll end my comments there. Thanks. <laughs>